Al Jazeera podcast. Mixed messages from Brussels to Kyiv. The European Union votes to advance succession talks for Ukraine, but Hungary blocks billions of dollars in aid money. Where does that leave the war effort and Ukraine's hopes for EU membership? I'm Zahul Rahman, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. So let's bring in our guest for today's discussion on Inside Story from Brussels, where the membership talks took place. We have Dunaka Obachon, Professor of International Relations at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. From London, we're joined by Maria Zolkina, Head of Regional Security and Conflict Studies at the Democratic Initiatives Foundation Think Tank. She is also a research fellow on Ukraine at the London School of Economics. And from Berlin, Ben Aris, founder and editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews, a business media company and former Moscow bureau chief with the Daily Telegraph. To all of uh, our guests, thanks for joining us on Inside Story. Uh, Danaka, can I bring start with you, actually? All is not well, really, in the ranks of the EU. And this will concern Ukraine, who have to judge whether Thursday's news of accession talks and stalled funding are really a blessing or a curse in the short and long term. Well, it's it's been a bittersweet summit for, for Ukrainians because this is a historic moment. You can't get away from that. The road to EU membership is now open to Ukraine. And as your report indicated, this is, you know, 10 years since the Euromaidan protests in, in Ukraine, which in many ways uh, precipitated the conflict with Russia because Ukraine was making clear its intention to move westward. So this is an important milestone, important step in that direction. Um, but there are huge obstacles to overcome, not mm. least uh, the opposition of the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who, again, as your report indicated, has objected to additional funding. I mean, more than 50 billion euro being provided uh, to Ukraine. And what he's doing is he's exploiting an institutional uh, weakness within the European Union, the, the fact that we require consensus, we require unanimity. Sure. And, and Viktor Orban has been a very strong ally of, of Vladimir Putin when it comes to uh, EU's policy towards Dunak, if I can just jump and in there, we will actually get more into that uh, in depth during the conversation. just want to get a brief idea. So let me just go to uh, Maria also uh, in uh, uh, London. Uh, your general feeling ab about these accession talks and the announcement, a good thing, a bad thing for Ukraine? What do you think the perspective is from where you are? It's absolutely positive thing, and it is what Ukrainian society is struggling for. I would remind you that uh, accession to the European Union has been prevailing uh, since the um, um, age 2000s. Uh, over any kind of political or military union with Russia even before 2014. But after 2014, and especially after 2022 large-scale invasion, so in all the regions of Ukraine, as Paul said, absolute majority of the local population, hitting to 90% on average around the country, are supporting joining the European Union. So this is a big victory mm. for Ukraine and the European Union now. OK, Ben Aris, let's get an overview from you. I mean, talks are only the first step, really, to full membership, as we've mentioned at the top of this programme. It's not a done deal, but the funding for mm. defence of Ukraine against Russia will be of concern as much to Kyiv as it will be to Moscow. This is right. Uh, it's, uh, the decision to clear the way to begin the accession talks, it is largely symbolic in so much as 
nobody expects Ukraine to join the EU for at least for years, uh, if not a decade. It's a long process, a lot of changes, a lot of reforms have to happen. Nevertheless, the funding issue, that's the key here in so much as we're seeing all of the funding aimed at Ukraine is now caught up in various like snags. Uh, in the US, they're supposed to put through, or Biden proposed a $61 billion package, which has got caught up in Congress. And uh, Orban has just blocked the release of the EU's package, 50 billion euros. It's about him also and his country wanting funds that have been held up by the EU. So you might see blocking this scenario with uh, Kyiv. Is it a blackmail technique? Many people suspect it is, but the problem with blackmailers is, is that if you pay them off once, you simply invite for, you know, further acts of blackmail. And you know, it, the optics didn't look good. I mean, the, you know, the day before yesterday, more than 10 billion uh, in EU cohesion funds was unfrozen and, and promised uh, to be delivered to, to, to Budapest, to Orban's government. And the very next day, uh, Orban found this you know, mechanism whereby he could still maintain his own principled opposition to opening talks with Ukraine by absenting himself from the room. So he didn't agree to it, but he didn't use his veto. But the problem remains, and he can use that veto at any stage uh, along the road of EU's uh, Ukraine. Uh, path to, to EU membership. So this is a problem that way it's very much uh, alive. Uh, Maria, in uh, London, uh, how much of a problem or an upset would this be for Kyiv to see Hungary take this particular position and its leader? Is it is it a worrying aspect for President Zelensky or is it something that he can overcome perhaps with one-to-one -one talks? Fortunately for Ukraine, such a destructive position of Hungary, like Viktor Orban demonstrated before the day of yesterday, uh, is not a problem just for Ukraine, but for the whole European Union, because everyone is dragged into some kind of a trap uh, when one country can block very significant decision for its domestic political reasons. Uh, and actually, there was found a pressure, so let's say very legitimate pressure on Viktor Orban yesterday, uh, which allowed actually to unblock the political process. But for Ukrainian side, the main approach is to be as much constructive as possible. And several days before this, the yesterday summit, Ukraine has adopted a piece of legislation on national minority rights in Ukraine. That piece which Viktor Orban personally and his uh, political power uh, in fact in Hungary were speculating about for years and years and they were claiming that they're uh, worried about national minority rights in Ukraine and then just several days before the summit Ukraine adopted everything which Venice Commission and which European Commission advised Ukraine to adopt this is kind uh, the, the the tactics which Ukraine is going to use further to be very technical to adopt the decisions the recommendations on the side of the European Commission and to prepare all the recommendations done before March 2024, when the formal uh, decision on a negotiation framework will be uh, developed and sh by European Commission and should be adopted 
anonymously again by uh, all the member states. Indeed, a, a lot of a, a technical a diplomatic speak here as well. Uh, and maybe if we've talked about accession now to a certain extent, everything is interlinked in this particular edition of Inside Story. Uh, ben Aris, I want to just go back into 2023. Much was made about the spring offensive. It's all about funding. It's all about money and the advances that should have been made during the summer. It didn't happen as quickly as European member states or Washington would have liked. And we're heading towards another winter, dare I say it, of discontent or a stand off. The money that may be pledged to uh, Ukraine uh, and the talks uh, that are ongoing and will have to ongo into January 2024 are all part of a much larger jigsaw puzzle as to try and solving this impasse in Central Europe. The counteroffensive of this summer that was a big disappointment. Everyone was hoping for another spectacular breakthrough like we saw last September where Kharkiv offensive, uh, the Ukrainians smashed through the Russian lines and, and basically routed the Russian army. That didn't happen. Russia was given, whatever it was, six months to build formidable defenses and those held. And then that's raised the question with the disappointment of the lack of progress, where people are starting to ask, where do we go from here? How's this going to end? I mean, there are no military advances. And the idea with NATO was to put Ukraine into the strongest possible position when negotiations eventually start and its position hasn't changed. And, and that's led to some Ukraine fatigue. Um, and we've seen the funding uh, snarled up in the Congress, $61 billion that uh, Biden was proposing, and also problems with the 50 billion that the EU are supposed to be giving. However, I mean, we have to be clear here, too, there's two separate issues. One was the EU accession, and there Hungary has uh, an absolute veto. All 27 members have to say yes. He fudged it by walking out of the room when the vote was taken. But the issue with the 50 billion, uh, there are workarounds there in so much as you could break that sum into smaller parts and then governments at a sovereign level could raise that and they're independent, they could free to do that. And then that could be paid into a Ukrainian fund. So Orban can't block that one entirely. But I think as my colleague suggested, there's a certain amount of blackmail going in here um, that already the EU signed off on releasing 10 billion funds, uh, 10 billion euros to, to Hungary but Orban's holding out there's a total of 30 billion that have been frozen and it's operating at the level there's a national interest here the Hungary's national interest they, they want to get their hands on that money and there's the executive EU level whereby they want to support Ukraine but as EU is not a federated political organization there's no formal tools to do that so mm. the EU are also okay. blackmailing Orban by holding back these funds. Indeed. And the thing is, if I come to uh, Maria, what's really interesting here is that while there is this impasse in Washington and in Brussels, Maria, in Moscow, the president there who held a press conference on Thursday, it's like a state of the nation address, really, and a question and answer uh, for his public at large to ask him questions about the situation uh, in his own country and, of course, the war in U Ukraine. He seems to be quite happy at the moment from all accounts. He says things are going to Russia's plans. Uh, there will be more offensives, uh, his strategic operation has not ended. It felt like a bit of gamesmanship. It felt like Putin was putting on the bravado. What was your assessment of that, considering he knows now how Washington and Brussels are bickering to a certain extent over money? 
One of the main goals of Russia is to deprive Ukraine of Western military and financial support, because in that case, Russia would be able to organize another large-scale attack which, which, with which they failed on, in February 2022. And they're doing everything. And that's why all the promises of President Putin that they're open for negotiations is just about that, to make the um, flow of uh, weapons and uh, military and diplomatic support to Ukraine decrease, and then just to capture what they failed to capture previously. But in this regard, there is a big hit on Russia's policy with a decision that Ukraine is not a grain zone between European Union and Russia. This is future EU member state. And that's why all the financial assistance coming to Ukraine will be investment not in the uh, black hole, but into the future member state. Mm. Uh, and that's why actually I disagree with pessimistic assessment about this 50 billion euros financial package to ukraine which were blocked together with other budgetary packages um, yesterday by viktor orban i am very optimistic actually about that because okay. european union is not uh, is not just limited just to uh, to one procedure how to send money and this is a broader issue uh, so they will pretty easily overcome this problem at the beginning of uh, January on the Extraordinary Summit. Well, I know Danaka is actually nodding in agreement, but before we go come to you, Danaka, let me just give our viewers a little bit more detail about accession and what that actually means, because the EU is looking for major reforms from Kyiv before getting closer to accession, mostly in the fight against corruption and changes to its legal system. But doing deals on things like agricultural subsidies will be just as important. So far, Kyiv's fulfilled seven recommendations made by the EU, rapid progress by most standards. Now, it's hired anti-corruption officials, prepared the judiciary for a major overhaul and aligned its media legislation with EU standards. But becoming a fully-fledged member of the bloc is a marathon, not a sprint. Kyiv will have to ramp up its fight against corruption, expand a crackdown on smuggling and reform law enforcement. The EU ambassador to Ukraine last month called the accession process gruelling. Kyiv's progress will be assessed again in March. Danaka, can I come to you first? Because corruption is a huge issue in any country uh, across the world when you come to think about it. It's all about good governance. How much of an uphill struggle does Ukraine have in tackling corruption at every level while it's still fighting a war? Well, well, that's it. You, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, they're trying to implement what are, you know, huge reforms for, for any country at any time. But Ukraine is fighting for its very survival. It's in an existential conflict with Russia while trying to carry out these reforms. And it's, it's, not, it, it's not about money. I mean, there will, these reforms will take place over a period of time. It's firstly about ending the occupation and liberating Ukraine. There will be a sequencing of events and real reform can only take place in peacetime when there's stability, when people have returned to Ukraine. The problem, I think, is that the EU seems to, to lack a longer term strategy of how to help Ukraine win. At the moment, it's in almost, and this is a classic EU, you might say, way of doing things. It's in ma managerial mode. It, it throws money at the problem. Um, it, it takes in refugees. It supplies some weapons, but never as much as is required or, or, or requested. And this is really a David and Goliath struggle between, you know, Ukraine and, and, and Russia. But mm -hmm. between the EU and Russia, and let's face it, Ukraine is the front line here uh, for Europe uh, in this fight against Ukraine. It's Europe which is uh, the Goliath. I mean, Russia's economy at the end of the day is somewhat bigger than Spain's. Europe, if it unites and focuses and, and, and treats Ukraine now as it, as it is one a potential member of the EU, if it gives it the necessary support, there's no reason why. Uh, it can't help Ukraine win, but it hasn't yes. had that 
focus so far. And, and, and just, just to mention what, to touch on what Ben was saying about Western fatigue, I mean, it's important to put this in, in perspective. I mean, what, what the West has been asked to do ultimately is to open its checkbook, whereas it's Ukrainians who are dying on the front lines every day. They're the ones who are most fatigued and tired by this war. Indeed, the war is an ongoing thorn in the side for, for, for many across Ukraine, as well as those fighting on the front line. Maria, very quickly, can I just ask you just one last question on this particular subject about how quickly and how transparently must President Zelensky get his house in order? President Zelensky is being controlled by uh, not only governmental uh, governmental agencies, not only by anti-corruption agencies, but also by International Monetary Fund, European Union mechanisms, because all the money and all the financial packages are held to Ukraine. They're demanded to be transparently used. And in Ukraine, I would remind you, we have very broad network of civil society organizations, anti-corruption ones are one of the strongest in Europe. So basically, I don't see any problem with transparent decision-making, even in the times of the war, even despite we have a martial law in force. Okay, I want to give our viewers a little bit more context about the counteroffensive that we are talking about. It's all related to this money, the 61 billion over in the US and over 50 billion from the EU. Um, Kiev's counteroffensive is looking inconclusive, as we've just been talking about, at the best and, and failing at its worst. Six months in, Ukrainian troops have retaken less than 250 square kilometres of land. Some of the major goals were to take back the key occupied cities of uh, Melitopol and Berdansk, killing, uh, cutting off uh, Russia's land connection to Crimea and disrupting Moscow supply lines. Now, Ukrainian troops are far from that objective. Russia has created a second front line, a network of defences in the Zaporizhia region. The entire front line is around a thousand kilometres long and Russia has spent months fortifying it. Gains have been so slow that allies are starting to voice concern about that Ukrainian fatigue that we've just been talking about internationally. And some military leaders say there will be no more meaningful progress unless they can receive more advanced weaponry from the West. Let me bring in Ben Aris here, because Ben, one of the biggest announcements this year was about the F F-16 jets from the US that would be donated in, directly from the US or through uh, a second country. Uh, and the support for that requires training of Ukrainian uh, fighter jet pilots. Uh, officially, uh, there's a, a centre opened in what uh, in Romania uh, just what last month, uh, and there's a lot of training going on in the US. Is air superiority really important for 2024 now for Ukraine? It's key. It's absolutely key. I mean, if you remember in the, the first days of the war, in the first week, Zelensky uh, did one of his video messages where he, he was appealing, he was pleading with the West to close the skies. I mean, he went as far as saying that NATO will be responsible from every death from today onwards unless they close the skies. And it's taken two years to get to these F-16s. And there, there's only a handful of pilots being trained and they're not going to enter the fray until next year at the earliest. <clears throat> and without this air support, I mean, classic NATO strategy is you send in infantry, but you give them air cover. And what in the summer offensive, Ukraine's been asked to do is do a frontal assault on these very formidable defensive positions with no air cover. And consequently, they're taking horrible casualties and it didn't go very far. Okay. And it's like Paul said, I mean, the, the support we've given or the West has given has been significant, both in money terms and in military terms, but it's always been 
slightly less and slightly too late. Uh, and we've not given Ukraine the means to win the war. We've given Ukraine the means not to lose the war. Those are two different things. And the strategy up until now seems to have been that exactly that, you know, that the not to give them crushing, overwhelming military rights win. Because lying behind this is the fear that Russia will turn around if they're losing and say, actually, those are NATO planes, those are NATO arms, we're being attacked by NATO, we're losing, and that would trigger mm. a third world war. And so there's a thin sort of balance, a delicate balancing act going on here to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose, but at the same time, not to provoke Russia to the point where it claims it's being attacked directly by NATO, or at least by proxy, which it hasn't said so far. And, uh, Sadly, and there we have world. to leave. It will be interesting to see how this debate continues as both the US and the UK head towards their own national elections and how important the Ukraine war will be in that conversation. For the moment, we have to leave it there. I'd like to thank all of my guests, uh, Danaka Obakorn, uh, Maria Zolkina and Ben Aris. This episode was produced by Lindsay Rempel, Ferdi Akare, Maria Elena Agostini and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Renjith Kurian and the programme was edited by Manish Mathai. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we look at Israeli support for the war on Gaza and hear from an Israeli protester about the consequences of opposing it. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.